Good morning. Good morning to everyone here, everyone online. Glad that we can gather and worship the Lord and hear from His Word. Before we dive into the message this morning, I want to lead us in one more prayer. Um, it's been a tough week, I think, for a lot of people, and I just want to pray for God's grace. You know, we've had another major shooting, and that's always um, heartache for everyone who's remotely involved and discouraging for all of us. This is a weekend that is a time of celebration, but it's a somber celebration. We celebrate those who have paid an extreme price so that we could be free. And um, my hope and my prayer is that this weekend, as you are celebrating, you will actually reflect on what has happened for your freedom, not only the human uh, beings who have laid down their lives for you, who are worthy of remembering to be sure, but how God has worked in your life to bring you to where you are. Um, If you just join me, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your work in our lives. As we've sung, we wanna build our lives upon your word. We wanna build our lives upon you, Lord. And um, we ask that you'd help us to do that even as we engage with your word in this moment. Lord, this has been a tough week. I know for a lot of people, it's just one tough week after another. And uh, this shooting is just one more heartache and discouragement. I pray for all those who are um, personally touched by it, that you would minister grace and mercy Lord, we also remember this weekend the cost of freedom, and we're grateful for those who have um, been willing to do hard things so that we could be free. And I pray for their families that you would be with them as um, this is a hard weekend, even though it's a proud one. Lord, may we uh, turn our hearts most to you, even as we're grateful for the things that we enjoy and the freedoms that we have and the life that you've given us and those who've made that possible. Um, ultimately, every good thing comes from you, and we pray that this weekend would be um, just a season of, of um, gratitude. And as we look into your word, I pray that you would open our eyes and our minds to what it is that you would have us to see. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, not only is this weekend the memorial weekend, it is also the halfway point between Father's Day and Mother's Day, and I always am glad when we get past Mother's Day and are heading to Father's Day. And uh, I just have an internal celebration, not because I'm looking forward to whatever might celebrate me, Um, that's always nice, Uh, nor because I don't like celebrating my wife. First off, most of the burden falls on my daughters now that they're adults, it's their thing. But she is my wife and she is the mother of my children and so I celebrate her and encourage her and, and she is well worthy of that. The reason I'm grateful when Mother's Day is passed is I no longer have the pressure of trying to figure out what to buy. Um, Some of you can probably relate to that. There gets a certain phase in life when there's just not a lot that you need or whatever you need has such a big price tag that that ain't happening. So uh, what do I buy? Now all of that pressure's on her and I don't have to worry about it for another year. Hallelujah. Uh, And if you take that concept and you escalate that to the nth degree, there's actually something uh, pertinent to our, our passage this morning because the idea of what do you get a God who has everything, right? Even sounds kind of silly to word it that way, but as, as a child of God and as one who wants to honor him, what do I, what do I, what do I bring to him? Every good thing that I have is from him. Everything, every good thing that I can do is only because of him. He doesn't need anything. And yet, for the relationship to be a real relationship, I want to contribute. 
I really do, and I know you do too. How do I do that and not, not just kind of think I'm contributing, but actually be giving God something that is of value, right? We, when we think of gifts, sometimes we think of actual wealth, right? Things of value. What do you give a God who owns the universe, right? Do you get him flowers? Do you get him, uh, diamonds? I was thinking about that. As you know, I tend to think a lot about the uh, stars, and our sun is a very average star, and if God lets it live its normal lifespan and it burns out, it will literally turn into an Earth-sized diamond, right? It'll just be all carbon, a carbon crystal, otherwise known as a diamond, and it will literally be the size of the Earth, and our sun is a very common type of star, and there's a whole bunch of them that have already lived out their lifespan, and our universe is literally filled with Earth-sized diamonds. I don't think there's really anything of wealth that I could offer to God, right? That's kind of a silly, silly thought. Sometimes we think, well, I can do this good thing for him, right? I can accomplish something. I can serve him in some way, and that's a valuable thing. When I give a gift to God or when I serve him, that's a valuable thing in its own way, but if you back up a level, it's like the child who is, who's gonna do something for mom or dad that has to have mom or dad help them every step along the way. And the stuff that I'm actually doing isn't actually as uh, significant as I think it is. I remember, uh, it's a silly picture that popped into my mind, but uh, years ago we lived in the mountains and when I was a kid and our driveway was pretty steep and my mom came home and parked the station wagon, you know, with the wood siding and all the 1970s stuff on it, in the driveway and she went inside and I was there and suddenly, it, it was a winter day and the driveway was icy and suddenly this, this big station wagon started to slide right out of the driveway and it was gonna cross the street and into the ditch across the street, I just knew it. So I grabbed onto the bumper and pulled for all I was worth. And I was tugging at that thing and tugging at that thing and screaming for my mom to come out and help me and she didn't hear me and I pulled especially hard one time and completely lost my grip, fell on my backside in the driveway. Oh no, there goes the car. Oh wait, it's not going anywhere. It was just totally stopped. I was tugging as hard as I could for exactly no benefit. The car stopped because of the shape of the street, not because of what I could put into it. So many things that I think, I'm gonna do this for God, what do I really bring to the table? What do I really have to offer? My best, my finest, my hardest work, uh, when God is infinite, when God is all powerful, God is all wise, what can I actually contribute, or um, sometimes we think maybe I could be creative and do something beautiful and wonderful that will bless God, and again, in its rightly understood framework, that does happen, God is blessed by it, but if I back up from that a level, what is it that I'm really giving him? Those of you that are parents know how this works, your kids, as they're young, they draw you pictures, and you treasure those, but you don't treasure them because they are works of art unless you have a prodigy like nobody's ever had, they hand you a picture of a stick figure. And if you're a, if you're a very careful parent, you don't even say, oh, what a lovely, you don't fill in the blank. You say, tell me about the picture. Because you have no clue what it is. That what am I, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Please tell me. But I appreciate it. And it goes up on the refrigerator, right? But at the end of the day, it's just a stick figure. What kind of stick figures can I give to God? He's the one that created the actual figures, right? 
the human body in all of its beauty. And I know we look around at each other and go, well, I don't see so much beauty. Some of us are kind of depressed that the mask mandate is gone and we actually have to show our faces. But admit it, every time you see a picture, the first thing you do is you look at it to see, how do I look? Do I look good? You know that there's an image that can look good and you wanna, right, there's a beauty. And God's the one who designed that beauty and then I give him my little stick figure. God didn't just design the beauty, he designed the hundreds of trillions of cells that go into that body that make it function and the metabolic functions and the electronic impulses that go through to run my nervous system and the cardiopulmonary system that allows oxygen to go throughout my body and it removes waste and all these amazing things that God designed and the beauty and the intricacy and then I come into this relationship with him and I say, and now I'm going to give you my little stick figure picture that I can make with my life. And at one level, as parents we understand this, at one level God is just blessed by that. But at another level we have to be realistic and say what am I actually contributing? What is it that I bring to the table? When I do some great work for God, is it the work itself that matters? When I do some great act or some great creative thing, is it that that matters? When I offer my resources or my energy, God doesn't need any of those things. He doesn't need my help to run his universe. He invites me in, but there's not a single thing that I contribute that he actually needs other than me. For God, it's very personal. It's very relational. And sometimes that's kind of counterintuitive to the way that we tend to approach the world. And so this morning's passage is gonna just push us right in that direction and say, what is it that we bring to God really? And if you have your Bible, go ahead and open to John chapter 12. And in this passage, which is a fairly well-known passage, there's gonna be two key um, truths that we highlight that are really helpful. Because at the end of the day, Mary in this passage is gonna do things that don't make any sense if we look at it the way we would normally default to looking at it. We have, to, we have to rise above our normal perspective and really see things truly from God's perspective. And then it all makes sense. And in that making of sense, then it also helps me to understand, here's what I actually bring. This really is treasure for God. And it's not the things that I think. Although, when I bring the treasure I actually have, I usually bring it through the things that I think. It's often through the work that I do or through the gift that I give or through the idea that I have or the, through the way that I serve. But the service or the idea or the gift in and of itself is actually not something God is waiting. He's not wondering how he's gonna meet his bills at the end of the month or how he's gonna fix the broken spot in the universe that I just have the solution for. He's not, he doesn't need that. So if you want to follow along, let's look at John chapter 12. And it starts in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have always with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Okay, so the last little section there kind of ties into the, the, the flow we've been following as we're building towards the crucifixion of Jesus and the plot of the leaders to eliminate what they think is a problem by putting him to death, and now it's expanding to, we gotta kill Lazarus too because it's very inconvenient for somebody to walk around and say he uniquely represents God and then actually raise somebody from the dead. That's very embarrassing if you don't think he's the guy or you don't want people to follow him. So they just wanna get rid of Jesus and the evidence. And that's part of the flow we've been tracing. This morning we really want to look more at the incident with Mary because it's a really critical truth that it shows us. And let me first just kind of summarize what we read so that we can bring it together because if you're familiar with the scriptures, you actually know there are four different accounts scattered through all four of the gospels of somebody anointing Jesus' feet and there's different details. And, and so let me just kind of put it together how I, think it, how I think it works and then we'll be able to track with what John's doing here a little bit better. First off, um, Luke's account is radically different than Matthew, Mark, or John. And I would suggest that it's actually a different event. Right? It's not like people walked around with expensive perfume to pour out on the feet of visiting rabbis. However, it would not be something that was so unlikely that it could never be repeated. And so somebody who was honoring Jesus might do that more than once. And the Luke story just has, has a lot of differences that are hard to understand with the other two. So I think that one's different. Matthew, Mark, and John, I think, are telling the same event. And it happens right before the Passover, the time when Jesus is crucified and uh, when he's gonna rise again from the dead, right at the very end of his ministry. Now, Matthew and Mark talk about two days prior to Passover, and John talks about six days prior to Passover. So if you're gonna understand that, I think if you read Matthew and Mark carefully, you see it doesn't actually tie the date to the, the anointing. Right? The anointing just happens in that same context. And what appears to have happened, which happens actually frequently in the Gospels, is that sometimes the Gospels will track chronologically and sometimes they'll build their themes. So it, it seems that there's an event that happens actually six days prior to Passover, as John puts it. And Matthew and Mark, who are trying to emphasize something a little bit different about what Jesus is doing, take that from the same week and they put it in the story a little bit later on. They don't say it happens two days before, but that's kind of in the flow of the story where it is. And the reason they do that is because they're looking to build the theme and they're not tracking with the clock as much as they are with the subject. So those are probably the same events. And as, as Jesus is there, it's actually a big gala, right? He shows up in the town of Bethany where a few months prior he raised Lazarus from the dead. So everyone's super excited, the miracle worker, the one who may be Messiah, who certainly is distinctive and stands out, is back in town, let's throw a party. Of course, Lazarus is invited to the party. Why wouldn't he be? I mean, he's, 
He's kind of the reason they understand who Jesus is to a point. And then his sisters, of course, would be there. Martha is the one who loves to kind of be the hospitality person, so she's part of the serving team. And then Mary, uh, every time we see Mary in the Gospel of John, we actually see her at his feet. And I think John intends something with that. Here's, here's a heart of a disciple who's just always wanted to be at Jesus' feet. So that's how that unfolds. Matthew and Mark talk about this being the house of Simon the leper. John doesn't tell us whose house it is. Some people assume it's Lazarus's house, Mary and Martha's house, but it doesn't say that, so we don't need to assume that either. Maybe, it could be. It could be that Simon the leper is their dad. That's one idea people have, or he could be somebody altogether different. Um, he probably is not a leper at this point. He may have been one who was a leper or who has passed because he wouldn't be at the, the feast with them. But that was what he was known as in their village, this guy Simon who was a leper. So they have this big party to celebrate Jesus and they find the house that is a good host home. And that's where they have it. And so this, this is where this unfolds. And as they're eating, it's a formal meal. And so uh, if, if you've not been exposed to this, let me explain a couple things, lest it be confusing. Like Mary is anointing Jesus' feet and wiping with her hair. Don't picture her like a dog kind of scuttling around under the table, um, contortioning to, to fit there. Uh, they, would, they would have a formal meal with a low table in the middle and everyone else would be around the table lying down essentially leaning on, well, they'd do it this way. I'm left-handed so I get it always backwards. Uh, they'd lean on their left arm and they'd eat with their right arm and their feet would be out behind them, easily accessible. And when Mary anoints him, in Matthew and Mark, it talks about anointing Jesus' head. In John, it talks about anointing his feet. Again, Probably then she anointed him, his whole person. It talks about this uh, ointment being in the ESV translated a pound, and that's just rounding. Um, It's actually probably 11 and a half ounces or so. It is a lot of lotion. It's a lot of lotion that she pours on him, far more than you would just pour on the feet. It's not a little dab. So she no doubt pours it on his head. It runs down his body, all over his clothing, all over his head. And then she pours it on his feet. And there's still so much that, you know, she starts wiping it up. And she doesn't have a towel handy. And so she uses her hair, which we go, and actually that's part of the point. They would have gone way more than we do. And we'll get to that in a minute. So that's what's happening. Jesus' feet are behind him, and that's how Mary's able to do that. So there's the, there's the framework. In, in Mary's actions, she shows us two key things about how we can give to God. Two key things about um, what a heart can look like that can really honor God. And two key things that... Um, we need to come back to periodically because it's easy to lose track of them. The first thing that she shows us is devotion is job one, right? Devotion is job number one. And then the second thing she shows us is that extravagance is basic. Extravagance is basic to my relationship with God. So devotion is job number one. Look in verse five and verse seven. When she pours the ointment out, by the way, The ointment, 300 denarii, is a year's wages for a common laborer. The best way to figure out how much it's worth is just calculate what would a common laborer make today, and that's close. It probably doesn't quite hit the zone because the buying power of a common laborer is actually probably less even even today. But 
it calculates out to roughly $36,000. She takes a $36,000 bottle of perfume and pours it all over him. It's like $3,000 an ounce that she dumps out. So, in verse five, when the disciples, in this case Judas in particular, is called out, say, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That's a really good question. Why wouldn't we give this to the poor? Why waste the money this way? And in order to understand that, we have to understand devotion is job number one. If I am, if I am serious about my relationship with God, there are a lot of things that come with that seeking to live in holiness, seeking to love other people. How I love you and how you love me is how Jesus is authenticated in the world. I am supposed to care for the poor and the marginalized and the weak and the widow and the orphan. Those aren't suggestions, those are commands. They're really important. It is my job to get the gospel to the ends of the earth, to make sure it's proclaimed, to proclaim it myself, to use the resources I have to help that happen. I give to the church because that's how ministry happens. That's important, God expects that. yet, here's this vast resource, and it looks like it's totally wasted. All of the disciples, as we understand from Matthew and Mark, are a little upset at this. Judas just has an ulterior motive. He's like, hey, 36 grand in the, in the communal bag? That gives me more to pull from. That's cool. But they're all kind of struggling. Why would you do this when there's so many poor people around? And it's easy to take what is a fundamentally good value and elevate it to the most important value and miss the point. The point is devotion is job number one and all these other things flow from that. My heart for God, my relationship with Christ drives everything else. I remember years ago we were doing some things to this building here and one of the questions that was raised pretty strongly by a couple of conversations I had was why would we spend that much money on this building and instead of giving it to missions? Well, that's a valid question but if you press it too far, it, it, it feeds right into the problem. Sometimes I look at whatever outcome as the point instead of, no, devotion to Christ is the point. Things that enhance worship matter. Now, there is a place to say enough's enough and, and how much do you invest in this as opposed to that and when there are people who are hungry, what do you do with that and when there are people having their gospel, what do you do with that? Those are all important questions and Jesus actually addresses that. He doesn't sweep that aside. He just says, look, you will always have opportunity with the poor and you need to, this is implied and expected, you need to take advantage of that opportunity. You need to plan for caring for the poor, you need to reach out and do those things but in this moment, this is the most precious thing because Devotion is job number one, right? The most important thing in my life is not what are my ethics, not what is the output. The most important thing in my life is what is the state of my relationship and my intimacy with Jesus? Because as that's in place properly, these other things won't be lessened, they will be strengthened. A God who is on a mission will, in fact, as I walk with him, lead me deeper into mission, not further away from it. A God who is holy will lead me deeper into holiness, not further away from it. But it's easy for me to get my eyes on the wrong things or the secondary things. And Mary is beautiful because she doesn't do that. How many of us, at the end of the day, wind up in a fairly utilitarian um, relationship with God, right? 
where um, it's, it's, it's really centered on transaction, not relation. I do this, you do that, I do this, you do that. Now it's time to work on this. Now it's, and even the things that are designed to help us grow in intimacy can often become just a transaction. I got up in the morning, I read my Bible, I should have something good to do, and now I'm moving on through the day, I'm checking the box. I'm, and, and those are important things, right? They're not bad to do, but if the heart has been pulled out of them, what's their ultimate value? And Mary is jarring for us, I think, because it's so easy for us to get utilitarian. And then we see this thing, it's like, whoa, what's going on there? And it's like, well, devotion is job number one. Devotion is the most important thing. My love for Jesus being celebrated and expressed is more important than anything and everything else. And it will, in fact, in the end, enhance anything and everything else that is good. But if I take that out of the center, then I'm in trouble. I need to be personal before I'm purposeful, right? Don't just jump into here's the things to be about. You know, for somebody like me, that's really important because I live my life incredibly purposefully. I have to keep fighting to say, start with, anchor in, always focus on devotion then, then out of that will flow mission and the life that I'm supposed to live. Verse seven has an alternative translation that helps us see that sometimes God's greatest purposes are served. Even we don't know what we're doing, but we're just devoted and we're loving and he uses that. Verse seven, there's a a phrase that's actually hard to translate. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And the ESV, which I just read from, is trying to just stay really tight with the actual words, but it's a little hard to understand. If you look down, you have a footnote that gives an alternative set of words that are just as legitimate, still not easy to understand. It could also be, or leave her alone, she intended to keep it. It's like, I'm not, I kinda, I'm not quite sure where that's going. So here's one where the NIV, which tends to maybe bump us a little bit further into, I'll, I'll interpret a little bit so you can understand it, is really helpful. Here's what they say. They say, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save the perfume for my burial. Here's the picture. Mary's had this, had this for who, who knows how long. It's a precious thing and she's been keeping it for something special. Now that moment is here. Almost certainly she didn't know that's what she was keeping it for, and almost certainly she doesn't understand the full implications of what she's doing, but what she's actually doing is she's actually proclaiming the gospel. She is anointing Jesus in a way fit for a king and also preparing him for burial. That's the gospel, the king who comes to die for his subjects. And and Mary's picturing it in this extravagant, beautiful act. And she doesn't probably understand fully what she's done, but she's been prepared for this over the years because she's saved this. And for whatever reason, this moment in her love and passion for Jesus, she's ready to pour it out. Devotion is driving her actions even beyond what we would expect 
if we're just using normal reasoning. And in the process, it actually leads her deeper into what God's doing. Right, devotion is, devotion is job number one. The second thing we see in this is that extravagance is basic. Look at verse three. Mary therefore took a pound, or we've already said 11 and a half ounces, of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Right, and then skip down to verse five again. Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a whole year's worth of income, right? This is extravagant. She's pouring out this down payment for a house, unless you live in Southern California, in which case it's not really a down payment for anything. But in a lot of the country, that's a down payment for a house. You can go buy most new cars, as long as you don't go too high up the scale. You don't have to buy a cheap little Econobox, you can get all kinds of cars for 36 grand if you're ready to write that check. And she just gave that and poured that all over his feet. Actually, all over his head and all over his body and all over his feet. And it's so much that it actually fills the house with the, with the aroma. It's this extravagant outpouring. We have no reason to believe that Mary is particularly wealthy. Maybe she is. She certainly has some resource because that's a lot of perfume. But there could be a variety of reasons she has that. And most wealthy people that I have known don't throw their money away like that. They don't just splash it around and say, oh, here's a $36,000 bottle of perfume. I think I'll pour it on the passing rabbi's feet. Why not? Uh, It's like that's not how they became wealthy, right? Maybe there's a few people like that, but it's not really common. And it wouldn't have been common in her day either. And she may not be wealthy at all. This could be a family heirloom. This could be something they've saved for generations. This could even be her dowry, right? In the culture where they have arranged marriages and you want to arrange well, she could be giving away her dream, her future. Whatever it is, it's, it's extravagant. And for her, it's just a basic response to God. I am all in. And if that means I don't get married, it means I don't buy the house, that means I don't have this thing, or that means even my wealth is diminished as a wealthy person, I don't have this $36,000 bottle of perfume, it's extravagant. And yet, it's the most basic thing. It's just kind of normal once you change economies. In our utilitarian economy, it's really difficult to understand. That's why they push back, and that's why Jesus pushes back further. That's not the most important thing. There are times, probably more times than not, that it would be better to sell that perfume and use it to, to feed poor people, to provide medical care, to send out missionaries, to pay for schooling, to do things that we think of as, here are good ways to bless the world around us. That's regularly how God works, but there's something more basic that says extravagance is just normal when it comes to relating to God. There is nothing that I have, nothing that I am, nothing I do, nothing that I can do or think of that should be out of bounds. It all is his. I'm supposed to be all in all the time. And Mary is all in, and this particular moment has happened, and she's moved to to offer it. That should be how any one of us would respond. Right? That's the heart that this passage is showing us. This is what I can give to Jesus. It's not the ointment, it's the heart. It's that unbridled, un, 
restricted, all-in love and commitment. It's that devotion. That's what Jesus gets. When he gets me, that's what he wants. That's why he wants to hang the picture on the side of his refrigerator. Not because it's a good picture, but because it's love. It is a piece of love that hangs there that he says, my child. That's how God looks at it. And so I bring love. I bring worship. I bring this extravagant all-in life. That's what I have to offer. And that's what Mary shows us. Now, how well do I do that? Well, that's, that's kind of a different story, isn't it? Now we've gone from preaching to meddling. Um, let me give you a couple of maybe ways of thinking about this that are helpful to kind of evaluate how I'm doing, how you're doing. Because I know if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you really do want to honor him. You want to love him. And you know there's nothing new about what I've said It's all in, of course. He's worth everything. I have nothing. It isn't from him. That's all true. Simple, easy to follow logic. So why does it get hard to do? And I think there's a couple of things that can get in the way. One is I was talking with a friend the other day, and he characterized a problem that we wrestle with as Orange County Christianity. And since we live where we are, maybe you can track with that. Right? It's not bad. It's people who really love Jesus and who really want to follow him, but we have this kind of Orange County mindset of life that says it's tidy, it's predictable, it's orderly, it's sensible. Do these things, life behaves, don't color outside the lines, the lines are good, and life is good. And in a lot of circumstances, that is what a Christian life actually looks like. But then somewhere along the way, I get addicted to that or I get committed to that and I forget that it's all in all the time and God comes along and says, time to color outside the lines and I have a hard time with that, right? I would rather be cool than be Christ-like because here's what I want and this is how it's supposed to be and it's hard to do that. I will sometimes let my dignity get in the way of my discipleship. It's supposed to be tidy, it's supposed to be predictable, it's supposed to work, and this isn't working. I'm not going to do that. That's uncomfortable. It's too big a stretch. That's why I loved how Nicole started this off. She started off by saying, this is hard. I don't do this, so let me do it anyway. There you go. All in for Jesus. It's a simple act, and, and we don't look at it and go, wow, how heroic, but at one level it is. At one level it is. It's like, I'm going to do this even though it's not comfortable because Jesus is worth it. And every act of extravagance on my part doesn't look heroic. It may feel heroic to me. You may never even notice it, right? Jesus will call me to live a life that is not always predictable and not always tidy, and that gets in the way. That gets in the way. Do I follow a God who has the right to do that? Am I willing to pour out my dreams? on his feet and say, you can have these, not mine anymore. Am I willing to let down my hair and let down my guard so that I can love? You know, the more extravagant things she did here is actually letting down her hair. I mean, it's, it's amazing enough that she gave away that perfume, but we think of, oh, wiping somebody's feet with my hair, icky. It's like, you never, and by never, I mean never, ever 
took your hair down in public if you were a respectable woman. This isn't a private dinner in somebody's house, which would be difficult enough. This is a public gala. They're throwing this in Jesus' honor. People from all over the town are there, and she takes her hair down. That is unthinkable. She is shaming herself extraordinarily. And then feet? I mean, some of us have a deal with we don't like feet, and we get that. It's like, no, no, this is different. This is, this is, this is a shameful thing. This is below you. You don't do this. And so she's literally, totally abandoning herself and her dignity because of her love. She is totally self-forgetful because of her love for her Savior. And there's an element that says, that's what my life's supposed to be like too. It's totally self-forgetful because of my love for my Savior. Do I have a God who ever says to me, your dignity gets tossed out the window, keep dancing. Be more undignified still. Do I serve a God who ever might say, hey, walk away from the nets, just leave them there on the shore, and we're gonna go this way, and I know you don't know what that's like, you gotta trust me. Do I serve a God who ever would do that? Do I serve a God who would ever say, hey, come to me, leave, leave your security, cast off, I think about the story of Bartimaeus. He's a man who can't see, in this huge crowd that's actually hostile towards him, Jesus is passing by, and then Jesus calls for him. There's this throng of people that's hostile towards him, and he can't see. Let that sink in. They say, oh, Jesus is calling for you. He jumps up. He throws aside his coat, and he goes to Jesus. If Jesus doesn't come through, he's just given away one of his most valuable possessions. He's never gonna be able to find that. And yet he's all in, he's just abandoned to what Jesus is doing. There's another way that this um, extravagance that's supposed to be basic to my life can kind of leak out or become hard. And that's um, what I call been there, done that. For some of that, for me, that's actually more of a risk. Both are a risk, but for me, at this point in my life, I've walked with Jesus a long time. I'm not, by his grace, I'm not giving up. I'm not gonna back down. I'm, I'm just gonna keep going. I'm willing. But here's what happens. And I hear this all different kinds of ways. I hear this from other people who will say things like, did my time, paid my dues, somebody else's turn. That is a lie. I have never paid my dues. I always owe God everything. And if he calls me to something that I'm tired and it's kind of hard and I've already done that, he calls me to that. Now, context changes. I don't always have to do the same thing and there is a place to say, there's a phase of life for this and a phase, that's all legit, but the heart that creeps in, and this is the heart that I have to battle myself, is to say, how, how abandoned am I? How extravagant am I really? And how much am I pulling in, right? There's a place for boundaries in my life, but if that boundary is in any way between me and God, that's death. And when I start pulling back, because I'm tired, 
because I just don't want to go through this again. I mean, we're in a phase right now where we all have to kind of face that, right? We're emotionally tired. We're spiritually tired. It's been a wild season, and now we're coming out the other side, and what's that going to look like? And I don't know what that's going to look like for you or for me, but I do know God wants me to be all in with him. He wants me to be all in with him, whatever that looks like. Mary's all in with Jesus. She not only pours out her wealth, she pours out her dignity. She pours out her standing in the community. She's laid it all out there. In one sense, through one lens, it's totally extravagant. Through another sense, it's just basic following Jesus. That's why she's such a powerful example and challenge and encouragement to me. And there's one more thing that really struck me this time as I was studying one of the commentators made a passing comment and it just grabbed me and I think he's right. I have no way of proving it, but I'm convinced he's right. And I think one of the most powerful things about Mary actually shows up in Matthew 27. Let me read you the passage. It'll be confusing at first, so let me unpack it. This is in the middle of the trial section. Jesus has already been on trial with the high priests, different ones. He's been on trial with Pilate. It's coming to the end. There's been multiple ordeals, and he's in the middle of ordeals, and more are going to unfold, and then he's ultimately going to be crucified. This is at a low point, and here's what it says in Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him. They stripped him. Why? because then they're going to mock him again. Every time they beat him, they stripped him. When they mocked him, they stripped him. They didn't want to ruin his clothes because that had some value. So they were going to ruin his body and leave his clothes intact. Remember? Remember at the foot of the cross how the soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothes because they didn't want to break them apart. They, were, they had value to them. And it was one woven tunic. Right, And then when they're done, it says in verse 31, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe they'd put on him because they put on a a royal robe, and they put his own clothes back on him and led him away to crucify him. And when they get to the cross, they strip him again to crucify him. His clothes are going on and off, on and off during this ordeal. He's wearing a one-piece woven tunic that has to go off over his head and on over his head every single time. And just a few days prior, he has been anointed with oil that is so potent and so fragrant, it fills the room, it fills the house, and that has dripped all over his clothes. And here he is, he's at a time when he has been betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, and abandoned by everyone. A time when he says, can you watch with me one hour? And they say no. A time when he says, oh, Jerusalem, how many times I would have longed to bring you to myself, and you would not. A time when it says he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. A time when it says, surely he has known our griefs, and he has borne our sorrows. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and rejected, despised. And here he is, he's been through this ordeal, he's only partway through this ordeal, he's got spittle on him, he's got his own blood on him, he's been mocked, he's been derided, he's been accused, he's been maltreated, he is alone and he is under sentence of death. And every time 
They take it up a notch. They take off that tunic or they put it back on him. Every single time, he smells that ointment, the fragrance of Mary's worship is with him through that whole ordeal. I just think that's incredible. I think that's beautiful. Imagine that. The very people you've come to rescue are the ones who are killing you, and yet, only one disciple knew to wash feet. Everyone else, he has to give them the lesson. And the one who washed his feet, her act of worship, her act of reverence, her act of devotion is still there. You know, I can't do that. That's a one-time, unrepeatable thing. But the scripture says that my worship is a fragrance to my God. And Hebrews 13 says that the fruit of my lips and the fruit of my life are the sacrifices that he seeks. Psalm 149 says that God delights in his people who are pictured in that passage as dancing and worshiping him with abandon. What do I have to give God? My great intelligence is nothing. My great strength is nothing. My cleverest ideas are nothing. My resources are so limited. He's infinite. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. What I have to give him is me. And when I pour myself out in extravagant worship that's really just basic Christianity, when I keep devotion, job number one, that's the fragrance of my life to my God. My prayer is that this week I would stir up that love for God daily, and that you would do the same. Lord Jesus, thank you for your incredible love for us. And thank you that you've invited us into a relationship that is overwhelming. May our love for you shape us. First words of your great command, love the Lord your God. May that be defining. May everything else flow from that, Lord. I pray in your name. Amen.